Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drew. The FBI released nationwide crime numbers from 2020 this week, and they're likely to contribute to the country's already tense debate over crime and policing. The murder rate increased by 30% from 2019 to 2020, meaning 4,901 more people were killed in homicides in 2020 than the year prior. That amounts to the largest single-year increase since records began in 1960. Guns were used in 76% of the killings, also the highest rate on record. The broader context is also notable. The murder spike was far bigger than the overall change in violent crime. That rose about 5%, and property crimes fell about 8%. Murder rates are still significantly below what they were throughout the 1990s. Politicians were already debating what to do about the increase in murders before this data was released, and that will only continue now. So today, we're going to unpack these numbers and try to figure out what they can and can't tell us. We're also going to look at Americans' perception of crime rates and compare that to the evidence. Here with me to do that is crime analyst Jeff Asher. He is co-founder of AH Datalytics and has worked as a crime analyst with the city of New Orleans and analyst with the federal government. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So I mentioned some of the top line numbers there, but there's a lot of data in this report on geography, on different types of crimes. What does that broader picture tell us about what happened in 2020? Well, the broader picture is that we had a increase in murder. It was far and away, no matter how you slice it, percent number rate, the largest one-year increase that we've ever had. But compared to where we were in the 90s, we're 20, 30% lower in terms of rate. Where we were in 2014, we're about 40 to 50% higher than we were in terms of rate. So it's sort of how you want to look at it is really what you're going to see. It's certainly plausible to compare it to the 90s and see that we're lower than that. But it's also, I think, hard to disentangle the fact that it was nothing even closer to the second largest one-year increase, which was less than 2,000. We had 4,900 more murders in 2020 than we had in 2019. So even from a percentage-wise standpoint, if you added 4,900 murders on top of, say, 1993 or 1991, when we had the most murders we'd ever recorded, you still would have had the largest one-year percent increase that we've ever seen. So the percentage is not inherently a low base rate thing. It legitimately was a really massive increase. And it was really nationwide. It was plus 20% in cities of every kind, every size. So down from under 10,000 to over a million increased by 20% or more. It increased in the suburbs. It increased in the rural counties. It increased 20% in Trump counties. It increased over 20% in Biden counties. So not only have we never seen something of this size, but it's, I think, abnormal to see an increase that is this universal that's happening pretty much everywhere. Does the fact that it is so geographically universal tell us anything about why this is happening? Well, I think it points to big picture causes. So a lot of the times when a city will have an increase in murder, the police department will point to a very specific cause. You know, we reduced patrols in one area or there was increased domestic violence in another area or uh, even a lot of times you'll see like if New York will increase, they'll blame it on bail reform law or a lot of places where you've seen specific laws passed. And the fact that it was universal suggests that these very hyper-local explanations are unsatisfying. It suggests that it was a big picture 
cause, big picture factors, because it probably wasn't just one factor. It was probably a complex mix of many factors. And very few of them, because it happened in New York, in Chicago, but also in Shreveport and Omaha and in Jackson, Mississippi, and all throughout the country, it wasn't just a handful of local factors. And so pointing to local factors is probably going to get less satisfying, less effective responses in terms of explaining exactly what happened. I want to get into some of the possible explanations, but because, of course, we're a data-focused outfit here and you have written at 538 about the challenges of collecting and analyzing crime data, what caveats should we keep in mind when looking at crime data? Well, the most important caveat is that this is an estimate. The FBI gets data, but some cities don't report full data. Philadelphia, I believe, only reported four months of data. Uh, And not just Philadelphia, but lots of agencies don't report a full 12 months of data. Um, This has historically been a problem in Mississippi, where rural and suburban Mississippi counties, less than 30 to 40 percent of them report their actual data. So what the FBI does is it, it takes the places that do report and it estimates based on what the numbers were. And so we don't know for certain that there were 21,570 murders last year. We know that the FBI is estimating that right now. The FBI estimated that there were about 16,400 murders last year, and then they revised that estimate upwards by about 250 or so in 2020. So they increased the number of murders that happened in 2019 because they got more data but it's still just an estimate. It's not a complete picture. And it gets even more of an estimate when you get murder, there's a body. And usually it's hard to under-report unless you're just not reporting the data at all. But other crimes are more reliant on police response, more reliant on people being willing to cooperate and, and to provide information. I had a piece, I think it was four years ago at 538, where looked at response times to... 911 calls and showed that in various cities, as the response times from police increased, the percentage of calls that were found to be unfounded would go up as well. And so if you have things like theft or burglary, where there's a long response time because police are responding to rapes, robberies, murders more quickly, then you're more likely to see those crimes underreported. And we kind of know this from the National Crime Victimization Survey, which is kind of the other way to look at crime data. NCVS is a survey of everything but murder because the murder victim can't be surveyed. And it points to how often crimes are underreported. And usually assault, robbery, and auto theft are pretty highly reported. Auto theft, interestingly, being highly reported because of insurance reasons. But things like sexual assault and rape, you usually get reporting of maybe in the 30, 20 to 30 to 40% range. So not only is the FBI estimating it, but we know that a lot of these crimes are significantly underreported. And so it makes it very difficult to make year-to-year comparisons in anything really beyond murder with a ton of confidence. So it sounds like it's important to keep in mind that we have different level of detail when it comes to some crimes versus others. But in this report that we got from the FBI this week, it says that major crimes fell by 5% overall, even though violent crime rose by 5%. And of course, the murder rate rose by almost 30%. Why did those numbers diverge in your estimation? So property crime has been falling for the better part of two decades. And so it's not surprising that property crime would continue to fall. And 
things like theft and burglary and auto theft are the three factors that make up property crime. Theft and burglary fell significantly. Auto theft actually rose. And we can get into that interesting nugget later, but it's it's not actually surprising since auto theft and murder tend to correlate pretty strongly. But if shops are closed, uh, I always use the example of Bourbon Street, where New Orleans averaged maybe 40 pickpockets each month from like November, December, January, February, Mardi Gras happens, and there's this huge spike and you have 400 pickpockets. And it's all because everybody's on Bourbon Street and they're partying and everything. And then March 2020 hits and you're good for the first two weeks of the month and then it plummets. And then for the rest of the year, you average maybe one or two pickpockets for the rest of the year. And so this is a situation where if nobody's on Bourbon Street, if there's no mobility, there's nobody around, you can't have these crimes. If shops are closed, you can't have theft. And if people are home, it's hard to break into homes. You really need them to be out and at work. So it makes it more difficult to do these crimes. And the crimes that rely on mobility are more likely to fall in such a unique situation as we saw in 2020, where we had significantly lower mobility. And so you would not expect these crimes to rise. And you already have this expectation that they're going to fall because they've been falling for decades. Whereas violent crime, it tends to act differently. It's a much smaller number. Property crime makes up about 70 to 80% of all reported major crimes that the FBI defines as major crimes each year. And so property crimes, if they're falling, then overall crime is most likely going to fall. Violent crime is the other 20%. Murder is about 0.2% of all crimes, major crimes that are reported. So murder does its own thing, and murder has no impact pretty much on the overall crime level, and it has only a minor impact on the violent crime level, since most violent crimes are going to be aggravated assaults and robberies beyond that, with rapes making up the fourth category of violent crime. So it's not that unexpected to see these things happen in the wrong, in different ways. And while I I certainly wouldn't say that the surge in murder was expected, when you think about murder and gun violence, it's the type of crime that relies less on mobility and is more about people knowing each other. Robbery is generally a crime where random person robs a different random person who's out walking the streets. It usually doesn't require the people to know each other. Whereas murder and gun violence tend to be less random. And so the lesson mobility is likely to be less impactful on reducing murder than it would be in theft and robbery and all the crimes like that. I want to talk a little bit more about the explanations behind these trends. But first, hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. 
It sounds like the pandemic goes a long way in explaining some of the trends in property crime. And I'm curious about some of the explanations for the big increase that we saw in murder rate. And I should say here, one, I know that we got this big data set this week. The data often tells us what, but not why, and that these conversations can be fraught. And also based on past research of increases and decreases in crime, that it's often very hard to explain why the trends are actually happening. So with that in mind, what can we say at this point? I think the best explanation is that it's complicated. (laughs) And I think that anybody that offers up it was X or it was Y is probably underplaying how complex the likelihood of certain factors are. We're barely at the point where we can say what happened. I mean, we We've just had a few days where the data has been out and we could say what the change was, where it was. And we're still at the point where we're debating what caused murder to go down in the 90s. So this is not something where it's easy to come up with concrete answers. And David Graham, writing in The Atlantic last week, had a great line that I guess I'll paraphrase where he basically said that factors aren't mechanisms. So just because we can identify what the factors are that might have influenced the change in murder doesn't mean that we know what the mechanisms are. What was the recipe? What was the formula that actually led to the increase? We can just sort of use what the available data is to understand what factors might have potentially contributed. And so there you're looking at, at, certainly we know that murder was up for the first couple of months of the year. So you could probably point to various things from the pandemic. So increased domestic violence, possibly in the first couple of months, increased stresses from lockdown and whatnot. There's sufficient evidence there that suggests that even without everything else that happened throughout the rest of the year, we probably would have seen an increase in murder last year and probably could have said, oh, it was the pandemic. And then you see that murder really took off. If you track it over time nationally, it increased significantly starting in the the May, June, July timeframe. And so it's hard to separate it from everything that happened last summer. And I think it's important to be very careful when talking about that because we don't really understand. I don't I don't want to give the idea that there were protests against police violence and then all of a sudden an increase in murder. And that doesn't causally mean that protests or anything like that was the factor. But analyst Justin Nix is a criminologist at the University of Nebraska Omaha. He's talked about how this is sort of a police legitimacy crisis, which has two factors to it. One of which is that you get reduced trust in the police, which potentially leads to reduced likelihood of being willing to trust the police and being willing to participate in the criminal justice sector may help to fuel basically a cycle of violence. And then there's also evidence in a lot of cities where things like arrests and stops slow down significantly in June, July. So it's plausible that some sort of of depolicing may have had some sort of role. But again, I'll be very cautious that it's not really well understood. And you can certainly point to them as potential factors, but you certainly can't say how that worked. What was the causal mechanism there, I think, with any certainty? And then you saw things stay elevated through the rest of the year. So as arrests, as as sort of this concept of depolicing sort of went away in a lot of places over the last couple of months of the year, murder and gun violence remained elevated. One of the factors that I think was important is that we have evidence, and I had a piece in Vox with Rob Arthur, looking at stops and arrests in cities that had available data. We had 10 cities with data. And in all of these cities, starting in April, May, you saw increased gun carrying. And it's increased gun carrying as measured by the share and in many cities, the number 
of arrests and stops for firearms increasing, even though with the pandemic, the number of overall arrests and stops was decreasing. And that share stayed high in these cities throughout the rest of the year. And in a lot of cities, it was increasing for the rest of the year, suggesting that, and I wouldn't say that that more guns was the cause, but at least in my mind, I think of it as sort of this accelerant that helped to increase the other factors that were already driving it. So these are sort of some of the thoughts that I think the smart people that think about why this could have occurred. It's hard to say which of these factors was the most important, which of these was the driving factor, or which of these just sort of was there while the others were. And I guess I would caution people that we we really don't know anything right now about what drove it. We can just sort of hypothesize what the evidence might be that could have been it. Right. I've heard some of these explanations, the, the three main ones being basically the emotional, social, economic pressures of COVID, the police legitimacy crisis potentially, and then an, an increase in gun purchasing. I think gun purchases were at historic levels throughout 2020. But it seems like in some ways... COVID affected all of this. Like people bought more guns because they were afraid of COVID. I'm sure that part of what led to last summer's unrest was COVID and all of the social and economic stress from COVID to begin with. So is there ever going to be any way to be able to untangle all of this? I mean, probably not. I don't, I I think we'll probably get good research that will hopefully give us a better understanding. But like I said, we still don't understand why murder went down in the nineties. So There's a lot of good research and there's still books coming out and research being done that's helping to identify potential factors there, but it wasn't just one factor that led to it. So it's really hard to say the degree to which any of these was was the factor. And I think you're absolutely right. People tend to say, well, the murder went up because of the pandemic. And then that's that's both right and wrong in that it wasn't just murder went up in March and stayed up, but you can't disentangle the pandemic from everything else that happened last year. You said that we're still debating why crime went down in the 90s and why we had reached some pretty historically low levels of crime recently. Have we been able to attribute past spikes in violent crime? Not really. You know, we we had a small-ish spike in 2015, 2016, that was kind of similar to 2020 in that a lot of the same factors after the death of Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Laquan McDonald tape coming out in Chicago, a lot of those same factors are are potentially contributing, but we don't really understand necessarily what the mechanisms are that lead murder to increase. And, And the 2020 spike was, you know, much, much bigger than anything we'd ever seen before even in the 90s. So it was two or three years worth of growth in the early 90s. So it's not something that we ever really inherently know. You could say for everything, the crime crime data is really bad and it's really hard to really get into the weeds. And that unleashes a whole other conversation about just how, how difficult analyzing this information is when we can barely describe it. Maybe it's worth asking a more fundamental question here which is, do we have good research on why people commit violent crimes in the first place? Yes and no. I guess no is probably the better answer. There's decent research. There's uh, Jill Leovi's Ghetto Side remains probably the best read on gun violence in American City. And that was written about 
I think it was 2006 or 2008 in Los Angeles, but I think it describes a lot of American cities. But as far as the factors that lead people to commit gun violence and lead people to commit murder, especially on a national level, our, our data collection is just extremely wanting. What are some of those explanations that are offered out there? So in Ghetto Side, Giliovi talks about two factors that have always, I think, made sense to me, but they're very big factors. The first one being which he calls the absence of a state monopoly on violence, basically. And, and the Washington Post did a, a great series on this a couple of years ago, that if you look at the clearance rate, how many murders are solved, basically the state solves so few murders. And especially last year, where the murder clearance rate in cities fell to 47%. So it plunged 10% from 57% to 47%. And that murder clearances tend to be geographically very centered and not inherently centered in the places where the most murders occur. So New Orleans, where I'm from, where I I worked with NOPD as a crime analyst, if you look at Bourbon Street and the French Quarter, nearly 100% of murders that take place there are solved. If you go a mile and a half away to the 7th Ward, which is one of the most, the highest rate of shootings in the city, you're looking at something like 10 to 15% of murders being solved. And so basically the idea being that if you know that the likelihood of your buddy's shooting being solved is pretty low, then you're more willing to potentially take retribution into your own hands if you figure out who did it and less likely to want to participate in the criminal justice sector. And then the other factor that Giuliovi points to is sort of the absence of alternatives. And there you can talk about really the big picture drivers, lack of education, lack of job opportunities, all of these factors that have contributed for generations to keep people in poverty that don't inherently lead to gun violence. But I think if maybe you combine it with this lack of monopoly on state violence, potentially leads to increasing violence, might lead people to gun violence. But I would hate to simplify it, and I would hate to suggest that these are the only reasons that people commit violent crimes. I'm sure there's a a lot of research on other reasons that people might commit violent crimes that I'm not familiar with inherently. But these are, at least when I put it in my mind, two of the, the potential drivers that might lead people. I'm sure there's many more, though. So this all leads to now a political debate over the role of policing in American society that the country has been having for years now and and certainly escalated last year. It was part of the presidential election. It's been part of mayoral races around the country since then. It became maybe the defining feature of New York City's mayoral race in the final stretch. What do we know about the role that police do and don't play in preventing violent crimes? Maybe to to some listeners, that sounds like an obvious question, but an analysis that you did in the New York Times showed that police only spent 4% of their time dealing with violent crimes. So what do we know here? So as a, a fraught question, there's decent enough evidence that police can reduce crime. If you add police, I think there was research that came out last year, earlier this year, that talked about for every 16 police officers, additional police officers, you're reducing one murder. The question, I think, is whether that trade-off is worth the potential negatives that come from policing. And it's a very tricky issue. And, you know, as a data analyst, I I certainly try and and stay out of the realm of of trying to say what that trade-off should be. 
But if you have more police, you're going to have more arrests and arrests can be disproportionately minorities. You're potentially going to have more negative impacts on your community. So the real question, at least in my mind, is not whether or not we need more police. And I know that this is not something that tends to be taken up in the political debate. And as you mentioned, the New York Times piece I had from last year, you know, if you look at what police officers are doing, especially when they're responding to 911 calls, very little of it is responding to violent crime. Most of it is doing things like patrols and responding to suspicious persons and responding to burglar alarms. So for me, one of the, I think the central questions revolves around murder clearance rates and the fact that murder clearance rates are low. And in a lot of cities, they tend to be really low. I don't know if this is just a reporting issue or if it was actually the rate that they had, but Cleveland's police department reported a 10% murder clearance rate last year to the FBI. That means the police aren't solving murders. Basically. And and I talked to a homicide detective, John Skaggs, who was the protagonist in um, Ghetto Side. And he talks about how basically 15 to 20% of murders should be ground balls. Like, these things come to you, you walk in on the guy and he's got the knife above his victim and the knife is red and you've caught him red-handed. That should be 10 to 20% of your murders. So you're not solving basically anything beyond that. And it's sometimes you get these weird reporting quirks. They may have had a larger murder clearance rate than 10%, but it, they reported a 27% in murder clearance rate in 2019. So it's very plausible that it's not a mistake at all. And so I think that the question shouldn't be whether or not we have more police or less police, but how are we using police resources to solve more murders? And even in the 2000s and 2014, when we were seeing historic low levels of murders, we weren't solving a higher percentage of them. We were solving the same percentage, so we were just solving fewer murders. And so the question is, how do we dedicate more resources away from perhaps some of the other interactions that the 96% of interactions that aren't violent crime that may be inefficient interactions and improve the resources dedicated to solving a higher percentage of murders, especially in the places where gun violence runs rampant and murder clearances tend to be low. And I know that that's not at all where the political discussion goes. It's usually a binary discussion of do we need more cops or do we not need more cops? And I think that that's sort of a false choice because if we're being inefficient, with the way in which police are being utilized, then the biggest problem is the inefficiency and not inherently the numbers there. Another, just gonna ask you about all the hot button issues here. Of course, like another <laughs> politically fraught issue is guns. Because I mentioned at the top, 76% of these homicides were the result of gun violence. What do we know about the prevalence of guns and its relation to homicide? It's not just places with more guns means more murders. But also, like Louisiana, where I am, led the nation in murder rate 32 straight years, tends to have the highest rate of crime guns being recovered by the ATF each year. And so there is a relationship between crime guns, most of which are not in murders, being recovered, which implies that Louisiana has the healthiest stream of guns available for crimes and the number of murders. At this point, it's really impossible to detach how many guns are available and how the ease of gun availability and the percentage of guns being used in murders. If you estimate the number of murders, so you, you take 76, 77% of murders last year were via firearm, multiply that by the total number of murders. And it's a little weird computation because the 77% comes from the 90% of agencies that report what weapons were used. Florida and Alabama don't report that. 
we're guesstimating the 77% back to the point that crime data is kind of a mess. So if you estimate how many murders each year took place with a firearm, last year was the second most murders with a firearm total number of any year we've ever recorded. There were more murders with a firearm last year than there were in 2014, 2013, 2012. So it's really hard to disentangle guns at this point because as murders going up, it's caused by firearms. The number of murders that were with a non-firearm increased by, I think, 10 or 11% last year, whereas firearm murders increased by over 30%. So it really is a firearm-driven increase. And in theory, in a sensible world, that would say, okay, this is somewhere where we should put our policy responses. But in the real world that we inhabit, it makes it very difficult to come up with policy responses, even though the driving weapon is so obvious. We are now three quarters of the way through 2021. It'll, of course, be a while before we get a similar FBI report for this year. But what do we know about the trend so far? So we can use big city data to estimate the trend. And this is what a lot of places, myself including, did last year that showed that there was, starting in the summer, really, there was this really historic increase in murder building. So I have a a dashboard with 87 cities of data that have available data at least through June. Murder in those cities is up about nine and a half, nine point seven percent 9.7%, I think, as of this morning. That suggests we're going to see a smaller percentage increase, obviously a 30% increase and then a 9.7% increase is not good. You're still seeing an increase, but that acceleration, that increase appears to be decelerating. And what I mean by that is if you looked at things starting in May or June, uh, you would have seen murder was up 23, 24%. And what that suggests is that basically we're kind of at the level we were for the second half of the year, maybe a little bit below it, but because the first half of the year last year was quieter than the second half of the year, we're not seeing inherently a decrease, but we are seeing the increase come down a little bit. And so if you were to sort of chart it, you'd say we were going up, 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 and then we went up, and then we sort of hit a plateau. And maybe we're coming down from that plateau, maybe we're staying the same, but we'll probably see an increase now with 2022 and beyond being really unknown factors. The FBI is also in the process of changing how it tracks this crime data. And, you know, one theme of this conversation has been how poor our data is on these things. Why is it changing how it collects data and in what ways? Historically, the FBI has used something called the summary reporting system, which is seven major crimes that we talked about. They added arson, but not enough agencies report arson, so they don't estimate arson numbers. They have something called the National Incident-Based Reporting System, NIBRS, which they came out with in the early 90s. And the idea is that it's a lot more categories of data. It's something like 52 different categories of data. Before you had property crime, you had violent crime. Now you have crimes against society, property crime, and violent crime. So in theory, it gives you a lot more information about what happened in a crime. And you're recording incidents rather than what the SRS does, which is it records offenses. It's got a hierarchy system. So if I murder you during a robbery, it only records the murder as the offense. Whereas now, NIBRS will record both the murder and the robbery. So in theory, it gives a more accurate picture of more crimes. And so basically, the FBI said several years ago, listen, guys, to all its 18,000 agencies that participate in the Uniform Crime Report, they said, we're switching to NIBRS on December 31st, 2020. You have to be 
NIBRS compliant, you can't submit via SRS. The problem is that as of 2019, only half of agencies were reporting via NIBRS. This year, it's up to 57%, whereas before you got a mix of about 90% of eligible agencies reported via either NIBRS or SRS. So like the state of California, not NIBRS compliant. New Orleans Police Department, where I work, not NIBRS compliant. So if you can imagine trying to, nine months from now, understand what happened in the 2020 MLB season, but only 24 of the 30 teams reported their records and their statistics, that's basically what we're going to get in crime data next year. So essentially, crime data next year won't be reliable. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know how reliable the estimate will be. And it kind of goes back to the fact that it's always been an estimate. So the likelihood is that the FBI will put out an estimate. We don't know whether or not there will be error bars. We've never done this before. So we really don't know what the situation is going to be. There's a very good chance, I think, that it will be very unreliable. I think this is maybe an important place to bring up that there is a lot of criticism of how crime data is collected and reports like this in terms of what is included and what is not included. This new data set, maybe once police departments become compliant, will it be a kind of fuller picture of the different types of crimes that are committed? Because I think some of the criticism is that our current crime reporting process is biased towards certain types of crimes that poor people may be more likely to be involved in. For example, that white collar crime is not tracked with the same scrutiny, things like that. Will this new data set be more full in that regard? Yes. So it'll have, uh, if you want to see how many thefts by fraud, credit card theft, more white collar crime, that will in theory be tracked to the degree that police departments are tracking it. The FBI always throws out the, the example of if you want to tell how many daycare kidnappings were in Michigan in a certain month or each agency reported, you can see that. You can you can build it at a lot better detail, a lot more specificity than you could before. One of the challenges will be that shootings, people that shoot each other non-fatally are still not tracked. So they're still doing aggravated assaults by firearm. So we're still not tracking shootings despite seeing a surge in gun violence, which, which remains problematic and remains baffling for people that tend to look at this. The last thing I want to cover here is perception of crime, because we talk a lot about public opinion on this podcast and what people perceive is likely to be as impactful on our politics as what the reality is on the ground. Two of my colleagues have looked at this in the past, Amelia Thompson-DeVoe and Maggie Kurth. And essentially what we found is that when the National Survey of Economic Expectations asks respondents, what do you think is the chance that you're going to be robbed in the coming year? Americans think it's way more likely that they're going to be the victim of a crime than what the reality is. So 15% of people said they're likely to be robbed in the coming year, where the actual robbery rate was 1.2% when this survey was being conducted. Why is there such a mismatch here? And what are the effects of this mismatch? So we talked about how 0.2% of crimes are murders, but because murder and gun violence have the highest societal costs, those are the things that get measured, I think, in media. They get reported in media far more often than other things. And so people are just historically really bad at evaluating trends. And largely, I think, because the only time they think about crime and murder, a crime is when a murder happens. And the only time they think about murder is when they've got an example of it. And so it's really hard to understand the scale at which 
these things are happening compared to historical scales when you're only hearing when there's sort of been an incident that occurs. You never see a news story that said there were no murders in the last six days or the last two weeks or something like that. And so I think that because data is hard to find, data can be unreliably reported, reported slowly, there's no national estimates that are, are produced regularly or the FBI is trying, but they're not yet succeeding with that. It makes it very difficult, I think, for people to understand because their only input tends to be news stories about when incidents occur. And they don't think about, like you said, the low rate. They don't think about the low likelihood of things occurring to them. And they're unable to grasp where historically things are this year relative to last year or the sort of 12-month rolling trend, it makes it very difficult. And because of all of the other problems in crime data thrown on top of it, they're just unable to make an accurate measurement. And especially over the last, really the last two decades prior to last year, where murder's been more or less the same, murder rate has gone up or down a little bit. It fell in the early part of the first six years under President Obama. But for the most part, you haven't seen dramatic changes like you saw in the mid to late 90s. And so if you're not inundated by stories of this big drop and things are about even and your only impressions come when something happened, you're more likely to think that there's an increase. And so that's sort of my theory as to why people tend to always think that things are going up even if they're going down and why perceptions are pretty much always skewed on this one. All interesting things to keep in mind when we talk about public opinion and perceptions regarding crime. But let's leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Jeff Asher is the co-founder of AH Datalytics and has worked as a crime analyst with the city of New Orleans and analyst with the federal government. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidigary Curtis is on audio editing. Nash Consing is on video editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. 